This is part two. If you missed part one, we explored Victor's radical optimism, delved into the birth of the Centre for Optimism, and discussed the transformative power of optimism in challenging times. If you missed that one, that is totally fine. Just go back an episode and get part one in your life. It is balls, just like this episode. If you did hear it, you must be bursting for part two. So I'm not allowed to say without further ado, because that's a cliche, and a cliche literally means a phrase or opinion that is overused and portrays a lack of original thought. So I'm not going to say without further ado, I'm just going to say, here's episode two. Welcome to Rise and Thrive, Conversations for Greatness. We bring you captivating conversations with extraordinary individuals who have conquered challenges, achieved greatness, and are making a positive impact in the world. This is your go-to source for inspiration and motivation. I'm your host, John Merkis. We have a complicate these things, but they're so simple. I have had the honor of having dinner with Bill Clinton. A, I have a seen a picture of you two together. I'm so glad you raised it because I, um, I wanted to ask you about it. His, his power, and, and I've had the opportunity to meet George Bush as well and Obama, you know, you can't become president of America unless you are extraordinarily charismatic. And each of them, what I found was for that minute that they're talking to you, or in the case of Clinton I had longer, they make you their entire world. Now, not every culture values looking you in the eye, but you and I come from a culture that does. And for those who do, that ability to look into your eyes, um, and the Indians, I think, call it drushti, you know, where you look into the eyes and into the soul. It's just incredible. They make you feel like a million dollars. And, and it is an extraordinarily powerful thing. I sometimes do that in my events. Actually, all of your listeners, if they ever want to try this when they're doing a speech or a thing, get people standing in twos, looking each other into the eye and saying, the leader looks like the person in your mirror. The leader looks like the person in your mirror. And whenever I do that... Um, it's hard to get them to sit down again and listen to the next part of my speech. But it's just a trick to try. You know, when you're doing a speech or you're moderating or facilitating an event, get people to look up, look into the eye. And I always say, do it like the, the Indians do with Drushti. And the leader looks like the person in your mirror. Love it. That's powerful. And I I remember you hearing hearing you say that once before and I got some lipstick and wrote that on the on the mirror. I think that was your advice at that particular time. So I wrote it on and it was great because it was fun. It was interesting. And when the whole family came in, they're going, what's going on there? <laughs> Why are you stealing mum's lipstick? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So what you say, what what you're really saying there, if I can interpret and love to play it back to make sure I've got it right, is you're the leader in your life. You you have the power of choice. You have the ability to be aware of how you create and the impact that you have on the world. So choose what lights your fire and go for it. Have I, have I summarised that okay? Yeah, and, and particularly the people who whinge and whine about what other people are doing. You know, I mean, my view is, you know, my, my mother and I used to have this wonderful debate because she'd grown up in Northern Europe and, you know, she'd lived under the dictatorship of Stalin and then Hitler and arrived in Australia when Menzies was prime minister. And her joke was always, 
The nice thing about arriving in Australia was you could say bloody Menzies and no one would lock you up. Um, but she, of course, had this view that you can't be a leader unless you've got followers, you know, whereas I would say everyone's a leader mm. and it doesn't matter, you know, in, in some small circumstance, everyone is a leader. So listeners, you heard John's advice there today. Either use your own lipstick or borrow some lipstick or buy some lipstick. Go to the mirror at work and write down the leader looks like the person in your mirror. And remember, John Merkis said it, so it must be right. <laughs> well, borrowed from uh, borrowed from Victor, but as a friend of mine would say, there's there's no new notes. He's a musician. He says there's no new notes. <laughs> oh, that's one. I'm loving these tips and tricks and things that you can do because it doesn't have it doesn't have to be hard. It's simple. It's easy. Things you can bring into your life today. You've given us so much gold already, Victor. And we say on the show, words create your world. And also we say, don't just think it, also ink it. So we've touched on some of those things already. Now, your book, Optimism, The How and Why, that's a contemporary wisdom. It's got insights, tips there, habits, quotable quotes to lift the spirits, but you can use in your writing letters and messaging. I love that. So can you tell us a bit more about that and the motivation behind you writing the book? Well, it started, as I said, you know, at the Global Integrity Summit in 2017. And, you know, the, the, I, I love other people's wisdom. You know, I think, you know, people talk about an ageing crisis and an aged care crisis. And I think, my golly gosh, we've never had so many wise people on earth. In the book, I talk about applied optimism, you know, in your, in your work, um, at home, it helps you. Why it's worthwhile. John, do you know the science now says that the factor that is most closely associated with healthy longevity, living to 85 as a man and 90 to a woman, is the trait of optimism. And, and it's the most protective factor against heart disease, the most protective factor against cancer, the most protective factor against dementia. And in the first two, for the doctors, it's the greatest predictor of recovery. I've done work now in three hospitals, helping them to foster optimism in heart patients and cancer patients. Because, um, you know, it doesn't guarantee success, but it makes it more likely. So I talk about leadership. And Dominic Barton, who's now the head of Rio Tinto, the world's second biggest mining company, uh, when he was the head of McKinsey, he said to me, Every great leader I've ever met is infectiously optimistic. But the conversation then went on. He didn't mean the big man or woman at the podium or the microphone. It was the person who can unlock the optimism in the team. Because most people are not made optimistic by their leader. Most people are not made optimistic by going to work. Now, i give you one little example, John. I... Uh, I did a, a workshop um, with a, a company that wanted to bring its workers back to the central business district into the office. And we're going round and what makes you optimistic? And this lady said, my garden and my pets. And I'm thinking, God, this one doesn't want to come back to the office. So I said, well, what are your pets? And she said, oh, a dachshund, a canary and a rabbit. And I said, does your rabbit come indoors like ours does? She said, does yours watch TV too? 
I said, as even sits on the ottoman and she knows how to switch it off when a rabbit recipe comes on. Now, we all laughed and laughed, but the boss got it. He said, I've never talked to this woman about her pets or her garden. All I've ever talked to her about um, is her inputs and outputs. So another trick for your listeners, we only want them to one, take one away, right? Too hard to have five new habits. But one thing I, I was, um, as you can imagine, John, I'm a bit of a talker. So I was in Sydney and I was having a coffee on Circular Quay at about six in the morning. And there was a bloke on a table next to me. And uh, yeah, by within about three minutes, he wasn't on his own having his coffee anymore. And he was a Singaporean businessman who was bemoaning the fact that he'd give the rah-rah speech every Monday morning. And by Monday afternoon, it had worn off. And I said, well, how about once a month you ask them what makes them optimistic about life and the business? He now does it once a month. So to be in leadership, um, optimism, start to learn what makes your team optimistic. So if you run a board or you run an exec team or you run any meeting, next meeting, put it on the agenda. Don't spring it as a surprise. So what makes you optimistic is the first item on the agenda. Put a little definition of optimism in, a belief that good things will happen and that things will work out in the end. And you may find yourself doing it once a month or once every three months. Because in Australia, and John, you would have been in them, those board meetings where they say, what keeps you awake at night? Now, I almost, it's the only thing that infuriates me. I almost throw myself across the table. Or what's making you anxious? And I'm, I'm a very irritating board member at that point because I always pipe in and say, and can we have the counterbalancing question? What makes you feel good? So, yeah, so the book is really practical. It's leadership, it's strategy, innovation, resilience. And then there are almost 900 quotable quotes. Um, one of my absolute favorites is from a professor of um, molecular psychiatry, who says optimism is the evidence of dreams not yet realized. The evidence of dreams not yet realized. And so each of your listeners, if they want to maybe at the end of the show or write it down, what makes you optimistic or what is optimism? But I just love that one. That That is my humdinger, this notion of our dreams and Dreaming is such an important part of life. Couldn't agree more. And I will definitely be asking that question of the audience as I put the uh, promo for this episode up on my socials. It'll be what makes you optimistic and really looking forward to, to what people write. I also need to thank you because you had previously asked me what the motivation was behind the book and then I went and asked you, but I wasn't sure if that was for your first book or your second book because you've also got the book, The Case for Optimism. Well, uh, The Case for Optimism was the early early one. You know, right. the, the Optimism, the how and why is sort yep. of my, my Bible after that one. Great. Um, so it, it's, they don't need to buy the first book. Okay. No, the, the, the really thick hardcover mm, um, mm. that you can slam on the table because it's so heavy um, mm. is the useful one. 
that should be in everyone's home visible. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the Amazon book website where I know I know it's available. Uh, and I really encourage you to have that in your house to uh, to be mindful of um, being optimistic and with 900 and scribble, quotable quotes. Scribble on it. Scribble on it. As I said, that, that prisoner who told me that the guy in the cell next to him read him one page because the guy has a 15-year sentence. So one page a day is particularly <laughs> useful um, in that. But, yeah, we lift at these people. You know, it can be easy to be depressed and anxious and sad, mm. you know, locked away in jail for a long sentence. Mm, mm, mm. And, you know, how can you lift a person? Um, it, it's so important. And, yeah, yeah. The, the challenge to each and every one of your listeners is what can you do in the rest of the day to lift someone else? Beautiful. Beautiful. And you're answering my questions before I get a chance to ask them, which is totally fine. And I'm glad you're doing that because I was going to ask you about um, promoting culture in uh, optimism culture in a team or organization. I know you've answered that one, but I know you've got this uh, superpower exercise that people can do. And I'll have a link uh, in the show notes for that as well. But what's that all about? It's a free exercise that you can do that Victor's made available. Tell us more about that. Well, it was an interesting one because I, I came up with the concept a few years ago and um, started collecting, you know, different expressions of optimism, you know, from radical optimism to ebullient optimism to cheerful optimism to Pollyanna optimism. And I turned it into a page and said, you know, meditate for five minutes on this and then write down, you know, how it impacts on your life and your leadership and, you know, what makes you happy. Uh, and then I was doing a big real estate conference earlier in the year um, and they'd gone through the website and they said, oh, could you do this exercise with them? So I converted it to a paper version and I had 20 optimisms on that one. But, uh, um, you know, through COVID, we've all learned to use visual codes to scan with your phone. So we've got 150 optimisms. And uh, so it's a really fun thing to do either on your own um, or in a group. Um, and you just sit down, you know, three or four sentences, picking whether you're a cheerful optimist or a Pollyanna optimist or the like, um, and writing it down. And it's a lot of fun to share. So if your listeners want to do it, they can do it. We've got a, a web version, but there's a paper version. I can send them the PDF if they send me an email um, and, and they can print it out and, and use it. The other one that's really good and the strong science around it, John, you talked about sleeping well. Um, the Vienna Medical School um, did a really interesting study on sleep and optimism. That won't surprise you that optimists sleep better, more sleep makes you more optimistic. But their view is that one of the best mechanisms for improving your optimism is the My Best Self exercise. And again, that's on our website. You can share that on uh, for the listeners. Mm -hmm. But what you do is you spend five minutes imagining yourself in five years' time. And imagine the family's okay, household's okay, the job's okay. Now, in my case, you can imagine I'll be a little bit thinner and, uh, you know, my hair will have grown back. Um, and then you spend five to ten minutes journaling about a day in your life in five years hence. You could be on holidays in Venice or Tahiti or you could be in your dream job and say, who are you going to have breakfast with? What are you going to do during the day? Who are you going to have lunch with? Now, I did it in a big group at Bendigo, which is a regional city in Australia. The Chamber of Commerce, we had 55 people do it together and they all shared it 
it was remarkable. Um, in other cases, people just do it on their own and you pile it away in your drawer and you do it every three months. And the reality is it's a bit like, you know, that notion of manifestation and the like. You know, if you write down where you want to be in five years' time, what's the likelihood that it's going to come true? And if you've shared it with your partner or your kids or your workmates, what's the even greater likelihood that it's going to come through? So, so the two exercises we can put on your website, John, my optimism superpower and the my best self exercise, which again, the science says is one of the best ways to enhance your trait of infectious optimism. Thank you so much for that, Victor. It's really generous. And what I love about, well, I love so much about everything you're saying and doing and who you are in the world, but you back up. See, a lot of the time I talk about this kind of stuff because it feels right. But you back it up with research uh, from prestigious places and all the things. So it's, it's actually got a bit more credibility than some guy thinking, oh, I think this is all right and it feels good to me. Have a listen to this. So I love how you back it up. Um, with with research. Oh, thanks. Well, we're just finishing off a, a major exercise at the moment, trying to measure Australian optimism. Because uh, we had a little failure. We thought that the federal government was going to include optimism in the measuring what matters. And uh, never put economists in charge of what matters outside of economists, because we didn't make the cut except to be quoted in the report. And for them to ask if they could publish our submissions online, to which I said, well, you didn't quote any of, you didn't make the finding that, that you want to incorporate what we've done. So we're going back around. We don't give up. Persistence is the key. Yep. So the other link I'd love you to put on, John, if you can, mm. is our survey on how to measure Australian optimism. Um, and if, if your listeners could just have a crack at it at seven minutes, and it's funny, you know, I um, can I confess to you, I use ChatGBT yep. to translate serious survey questions into Australian language. Great. Wow. So it's, it's, we've got this question that is extremely ochre. Uh, so if your friends like some ochre humour, yep. that survey they will really enjoy. And it takes about six or seven minutes. I would love to do that, have that uh, made available to all of our listeners. Now, I do want to ask, though, if any of our US, Canadian, even our Czechoslovakian listeners, is it Australian only? No, well, they can do it. Um, but we'll also put on the general survey, what makes okay, you optimistic? Because that one, we've now got answers from 102 countries, Yep. Um, 40,000 answers. And when you do that survey, you can actually measure your optimism against others. So... The Centre for Optimism, we've got um, subscribers in 82 countries. I do confess there are only two in Bulgaria, but at least there are two in Bulgaria. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, and my friends in the Congo keep wanting me to come to the Congo and I keep reading about the Congo, so I keep saying I think I'm better off doing it online. <laughs> Another thing that I'm really big on is the power of music. And I ask all my guests, what is a song that motivates you? What's that? You probably got a, a plethora, but what's that one song you go? When well, I put this on, well, can I, I share a few. Yeah, share please, a, please do. Uh, because in three days' time, three MBS, which is a, a classical radio station, is going to have an hour-long interview with me with my nine favourite pieces of music. So my first political campaign, um, we had "When the Going Gets Tough, the Tough Get Going." Yep. A more recent song that I love is. 
one by August Green, which is a black American supergroup, including Common and Brandy, called Optimistic. And the video is stunning. The video is stunning on that one. And then the third one I'd share with you is there's a little primary school in Glasgow where the teacher read the kids my book and the kids got together with their music teacher and wrote their own rap version of Optimistic. So that's a third one. And then we talked the other earlier about spirituality. So my favourite meditation music is the Gregorian chant. You know, that 13th century high point of Christian music, but built on, you know, Judaic principles and probably 50,000 years of tradition in, in the Gregorian chant. And there's this jazz saxophonist called Jan Garbarek, a Danish guy. So he has this group of um, singers doing the Gregorian chant and he plays this jazz saxophone into it. And, and it's just, you can just feel it soaring up to the ceilings. So I love that. But then all my friends criticized me, John. Hmm. Um, when I when I did the radio show, they said, what about the girl from Ipanema? You drove us nuts driving around New Zealand because you were the only one with a CD in the early days of CDs. So um, stuff, I love those sort of folky things, you know, yeah. the girl from Ipanema, um, where do you go to, my lovely, um, you know, those sorts of things. Um you know, um, Peter Sarstedt, you know, um, I'll buy you one more frozen orange juice on this enchanted day. You know, we'll drive the sunny streets of, sunny streets of Madrid, you know, laughing all the way. And John, you're laughing. Laughter. I never finish one of my speeches without laughter yoga. And I had the great compliment the other day. I was speaking to an audience of 180 engineers. And it was the after lunch speech, which, as you know, is the death slot. And, um, you know, you've all come back after lunch, you know, am I back in? And the chairman said, Victor, can you finish off with a dose of laughter yoga? And uh, we got 178 of the 180 engineers laughing themselves silly. So, John, are you prepared to take a risk on your podcast? Sure am. All right. So everyone listening in, or those, particularly those of you watching, um, what we're going to do is we're going to breathe in for four, breathe out for four, breathe in for four, breathe out for four, breathe in deeply, and then we're going to laugh hysterically, and John and I are going to lead it. So everyone ready? Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Ben Mosher, who teaches this at La Trobe University, laughter is the best medicine. So always end every great speech, every great event you do with a little bit of laughter. I totally agree, right? And it is uh, how we should be measuring success by how many times uh, you've uh, laughed today. So, oh, it's just, it's been so wonderful. I've got to ask you, because you, you, you're out there. People want to speak to you. People like me would love to have you on our shows because of everything you bring and, and how generous that you are. But 
What's a question that you wish you were asked more often? What's been the best thing in your day? Although I get that a lot now because mm. people character, you know, people associate that with me. Mm. That, that question, what makes you optimistic? Yep. The, the one I think is very important, particularly if you've got teenagers, is what do you think? Right? Not what you know. Mm. What do you think? Um, because, you know, we all interpret world events in different ways and, mm. you know, that ability to just open the conversation and bring people together. One of the things you said earlier, John, that struck me was that, you know, surrounding yourself with positive people. And when I interviewed um, Bill George, you know, the author of True North, the head of leadership at Harvard, I said, what makes you optimistic, Bill? And he said, surrounding myself with positive people, what a blessing. Um, so, so I think the question I, I like is, what do you think? I like that. I'm going to use that with my kids. As, as you were saying, and I was thinking, you know, as, an, as a parent, sometimes you're often, often talking and, and asking them to do things and things like that. But I can't remember the last time I said to them, what do you think? And, and you want to avoid them watching the news too much because, mm. um, you know, one of the things we talked about, you know, before the interview was, you know, the books that, that have influenced me. And, you know, for kids, of course, in fact, the other day I was talking to some five-year-olds, I said, have you read The Magic Faraway Tree? You know, The Magic Faraway Tree still remain, rem remains my favourite book, you know, by Enid Blyton. But more contemporary books, um, John Hagel, who headed the Deloitte Centre for the Edge, wrote a book called The Power of Pull. And uh, that was my gospel for 2010 to 2020. And then a, more, a, a new book, um, Rosling's Factfulness, you know, where he, he, he actually teaches you to feel sorry for people who've got a bleak view of the world. You know, you try and correct people with what's going right in the world. And I go back to a quite old book, John, um, the Power of Positive Thinking, which was a bestseller for five years in the 1950s by a guy called Norman Vincent Peale. Mm, mm. And funny enough, uh, in contemporary politics, Norman Vincent Peale was the pastor in the Marble Church in Wall Street. So who, what family, today's fa um, powerful families, were his parishioners? The Trumps, the Trumps. And um, in one of his sermons that I read, um, he talked about um, don't argue with people unless they're being negative and wrong. And I always joke that young Donald Trump, who would have been a, a, a boy or a teenager, must have been asleep or goofing off during that sermon because he certainly didn't learn that don't argue with people unless they're negative and wrong. But Norman Vincent Peale talked about that as well. So this notion... Um, you know, and other people today, um, you know, Stephen Pinker from Harvard, you know, he says anyone who remembers the good old days has got a bad memory. So, you know, we've got to share. I mean, you can't convince people to be optimistic with facts, right? The reality is, you know, we've got less war than we've ever had. We've got less murder than we've ever had. People live longer than they've ever lived before. Um, all those good things happening. But everyone has their own grief. And, and so... You know, maybe you're frustrated because, you know, you were late to your meeting. You know, maybe someone in your circle has died. You know, maybe you are watching too much of the news on the Arab-Israeli, you know, problem today and, and it's really ground you down.
So what you and I have to do and each of your listeners has to do is to understand that whilst we can be optimistic every day, right, it's a state of mind, not a state of the world, not everyone else gets it. And if we, when I set up the symbolism for the Centre for Optimism, I said, be a beacon through the fog of pessimism. And, and so each of us has that opportunity. And if we just impact on one person in the day, you, John, of course, have an audience of hundreds of thousands. You know, you will impact on hundreds of thousands. If, if you can be that beacon through the fog of misery that these days the commercial news thinks is their business, you know, every news channel now competes to bring us down and to sow distrust and discord and fear and anxiety. And sometimes I think, you know, God, maybe it's, it's remember Ronald, oh, you're too young to remember Ronald Reagan, but you know, he used to talk about the axis of evil, you know, and, and, you know, to what extent, you know, are these people, you know, using their power and, and their influence to bring down the Western world? And as I said, the new president of Singapore in a speech last year said this is the biggest mission in public policy in the world. How can we make the Western world feel better about what it does? Because then we can do more for other people. You know, and, and, you know, how can you bring prosperity to North Africa, to Southern Africa, to the Pacific Islands, if you think you're doing it hard? You know, do you know, I wrote an essay the other day, John, in the news in the last two weeks, Australia has 22 crises. There's a homes crisis, there's a building crisis, a skills crisis, a medical crisis, an aged care crisis. If you lived in Yemen, would you like those crises? Quality problems, aren't they? That's, uh, that's what I say to sometimes of my kids, especially I bring them up all the time because they teach me so much. But if they're complaining about something, sometimes I'll say, oh, that's a quality problem. This is, lots of people would love to have that one. Uh, and, and what would you do about it? We can't build 400,000 houses in a year, right? There isn't a housing crisis. There's a housing challenge. There's a housing mm. opportunity. But how is, you know, you, you hear some of the proposals from state governments now, they sound nuts, absolutely nuts. You know, they've got borrowings up to the hilt. They don't have the money to do it, but they've got to be seen to take action in a crisis. Mm. You know, a health system. If, if Australians have got the second highest average lifespan on earth, how can you say our health system is broken? It doesn't match the data, does it? No. So, I mean, you know, there, there's there's too much demand but mm. not enough doctors and, and you've got to be able to manage that and the like. But it's not a health crisis. Victor, I could have you on for hours and hours, but I know you're uh, highly in demand and I'd like to finish off by asking you the question. You knew it was coming. What makes you optimistic? John, for me, it's four generations. It's four generations. My grandparents and great-grandparents uh, lived in Lithuania and Latvia when it was occupied first by the Swedes and then by the Russians. And they were great nationalists, you know, it's preserving language and the like. Um, my grandfather helped set up the Lithuanian army. 
Um, he was executed. He was tortured to death. My grandmother was sent to the Gulag for 12 years. My other grandparents were refugees. My parents were refugees. And, do you know, they could have shared stories of misery, but instead they shared stories of humour, of, of joy. I still remember my mum, you know, they were starving after the war and she talked about that first bowl of pea soup, you know, that they'd had in an American camp. And, you know, she was stuck in the Russian zone. She would have been executed. And as a 16-year-old sweet talk to these sort of 18-year-old American soldiers, not even, not just letting her through the checkpoint, but they waved down a car and said, drive this young girl to Bavaria. And, and so my parents taught me and my grandparents taught me to look at these things in the course of human history, um, bravery, courage, persistence. Yeah, as I said, my mum lived under Stalin and Hitler, two epitomes of evil. So for me, it really is that, that example. And then in contemporary times, learning stuff from people like you, John. Uh, this year, the art and science of joy chose me as their first superpower of joy. And so every day this year, I've been looking for joy. So for me, optimism comes out of that exa intergenerational example. Yeah. And then every day, just enjoying what I do. So, John, we have to end this interview with me asking you, John, what makes you optimistic? What makes you feel optimistic? Well, you said doing what you love doing, and that's the epitome of what's happening to me is because I was very big on um, personal development and bettering myself uh, in my 20s and 30s. And then I became a family man and I focused on being the best husband and father I could. And that's fantastic. But what I realized I was doing was I put that stuff on the back burner. I hadn't read a book for years. I had a bit of an interest and I, and I remembered some of the principles. But it's only in the last couple of years where I have reignited that passion again. I've got out some of my old um, even tapes and CDs with speakers I used to have. And my dream was always to be an international public speaker. So when I said I, I put those those things on hold, I put that dream on hold. And now what I've realized is I can be that international public speaker every day and I can have a vehicle like a podcast and I am an international speaker. So doing what I love, feeling like I'm on the path, doing what I feel I was born to do, it's a bit self-fulfilling. I'm doing that. It makes me more optimistic, so I do more of it. Splendid. It, it's exactly what the world needs. It, it, yeah, as Penny Morden said, holding the sword for the new king. We need optimists right. for the next hard yards. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to know you, and thank you so much for being on the show. I'm sure our listeners have got so much out of it. I'm really going to enjoy even writing up the show notes to this uh, episode. It's just Marvellous. Thank you so much. John, absolute delight. I'm so honoured that you asked me. Another incredible episode of Arise and Thrive Conversations for Greatness. I hope this conversation has ignited a fire within you, inspiring you to take bold steps towards your own path of greatness. And guess what? The journey doesn't end here. There's so much more to explore, learn and achieve. 
So if you're hungry for more insights, more inspiration, and more strategies to fuel your personal and professional greatness, get ready, because the next episode is just around the corner. Every Tuesday, to be precise, where we'll continue to unravel the secrets to unlocking your extraordinary potential. Don't miss out on the chance to keep rising and thriving with us. Hit the subscribe button and you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. And remember, greatness is not a destination. It's a continuous journey, so let's embark on it together. Thank you so much for being part of the Rise and Thrive community. It means so much to me that you're listening. And my wish for you is that you get so much out of doing so. Keep reaching for the stars, keep pushing your boundaries and keep embracing the challenges that come your way because that's how we truly grow. Stay tuned, stay motivated and get ready to rise and thrive. If you're finding value from our conversations, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, family and colleagues. Together we can create a ripple effect of positivity, optimism and positive change. Keep shining brightly. Your greatness knows no bounds. And remember, be great and stay awesome.